0: Let's go through the anatomy of a case if somebody gets a board complaint, what what do they often see? What triggers the typical board complaint that requires a reaction? And of course, not all complaints that are received merit attention by the board. Sometimes the complaint gets snuffed out before it even gets started, correct?
1: Well, not in Texas. If if a complaint letter is filed in Texas, Unless you have filed a complaint with the Texas Medical Board against a veterinarian, uh, which would get snuffed out for jurisdictional reasons right off the bat, basically in Texas, there's a statutory duty to uh, notify the doctor about every complaint that comes in and give the doctor, you know, in Texas at least 28 days to respond to the complaint. Mm -hmm. Now, a lot of them get snuffed out after the response is filed. Um, and before an investigation is opened. But uh, of course, I don't know about those that don't ever get brought to the doctor's attention and are snuffed out early. uh, But it's my understanding that unless it's just patently non-jurisdictional in my veterinarian example, then the doctor is going to receive the a letter from the Texas Medical Board with the opportunity to respond at that point in time. Uh, Typically, complaints come from the patient. Mm -hmm. Uh, That's not an absolute, though. Uh, There's plenty of other sources for uh, complaints to come from. It can come from the patient's loved one. I have lots of examples where the patient is very happy with the physician's uh, care but uh, a loved one, a sister, or a husband is not happy with the care and files the complaint against the doctor. Um, and and it cause, makes for an awkward situation when the physician is trying to determine whether or not to continue the patient-physician relationship in a situation mm-hmm. where there is a complaint against him involving his or her care for the patient. Uh, another big source for Medical board complaints comes from disgruntled Mm -hmm. ex-employees. A lot of times these employees will think they're seeing the doctor do things wrong or actually see the doctors doing things wrong and file the complaint uh, with the Texas medical board. Uh, Disgruntled ex-spouses oftentimes file complaints and use the medical board as potential leverage in their divorce action. I've never quite understood that one, but we do get that a lot. Uh, insurance companies file complaints a lot. Those are usually related to either billing things that insurance companies have seen. and I'm talking about the Aetnas and the Cignas and the UnitedS of the world. Um, um, or that they have seen a pattern of you know excessive billing for like a level five code visit on every mm-hmm. visit that comes in. Um, sometimes the complaints come from even, you know, other sources than what I've come up with here, but it, I would say 70% of them are patient driven, but I would say a full 30% are not patient.
0: So once the doctor gets the complaint, what's the next step? Let's say they've called you up on the phone. They've educated you on the, their defense or their fact pattern, um, I'm sure the clock starts ticking at that point because you want to timely respond. But what is it that they can expect in terms of getting a response put together? How they can participate and help? And what are the what's the universe of options based on this stage of the well, in uh, Texas, the process?
1: In Texas, sorry about that, Jeff. In Texas, you get 28 days to respond to the complaint, not from the date you receive the letter, but from the date the letter is mailed. Uh, and so, oftentimes it takes a week to get to brought to the doctor's attention. Mm-hmm. Uh, I feel really lucky when I get hired and have, you know, three weeks, 21 days to get the response put together. Uh, what what can be expected at that point in time is usually I will need all of the medical records for that patient. Right. Um, and so we will send out a link to get uh, via a secure link all of the medical records. And typically, I have my clients kind of send me a narrative of the background for the care for the patient and then a specific um, uh, response to each of the allegations. Like it, the, the, the allegation may say, uh, you failed to meet the standard of care and the treatment of patients so-and-so by failing to timely call about the lab results, comma, by uh, Failing to timely refill prescriptions, comma and by uh, having your staff be mean to me, mm-hmm. and so, which is which is a pretty common complaint in Texas. That last one, believe it or not. So 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 doctors tell your staff members to be nice to the patients and kind of bend over backwards to keep them uh, happy because actually under medical board rules, if your staff is mean to the patient, you can have a ding put on your license. So don't want that
0: to happen. You could be the uh, nice one. Your staff can be mean, but you'll get beaten up because of the staff you hired. That's
1: exactly right. Your staff is a reflection of you and you're responsible for your staff. Uh, yeah. It's obvious that you're responsible for your like medical assistants and your nurses and your nurse practitioners, but it's maybe less obvious that you're also responsible for the receptionists, the front office people, the, the billing people you know, a lot of times complaints come in when the doctor has the audacity to try to collect the bill. And, you know, the the patient will file a complaint that he's threatening to send or the the, the doctor's threatening to send me to um, collections. And so, you know, be careful about that. You're going to win that complaint more than likely, especially if you build appropriately. But your conduct then does get on the Texas Medical Board radar, and you're going to have to produce your medical records and the billing records, and somebody might go through those and start micro-looking through them, and while it was perfectly okay for you to send this case to collections, they may notice that your medical records aren't up to their standards, and complaints can morph from what's in the original complaint letter to what's in uh what you end up getting investigated for so you want to stay off the medical board radar if at all possible Uh, but once i get input from the physician in terms of the medical records and that narrative uh, my staff and i go to work we turn that input into a well-drafted well-thought-through response that uh you know talks in terms of the you know the 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 physician being a very good physician, how long they've been practicing, if they're board certified, Mm -hmm. that we feel like under these circumstances, the the physician met the standard of care in all respects. We will write a letter with sites to the medical record um, so that whoever ends up reviewing this at the medical board at the end of 28 days when the response is put in, I tell my staff and my, my team members let's spoon feed this person that's reading the response so that they can see our statement in the letter. They can go confirm that in the medical record and hopefully get this thing dismissed as early as possible. Sometimes you'll need witness statements like in terms of the staff member uh, violated HIPAA by talking about my case in the lobby. the the doctor may not have known what was even happening. And so the doctor will be relying on the staff member to write a letter saying, I do recall this patient. I did not talk in any specific medical care in front of the patient um, in the open. And in fact, I recall that when she kept asking me questions about when the doctor was going to schedule an appointment for her such and such follow-up for such and such problem, that I asked her to step inside another room so that we can talk about this so that we don't violate HIPAA. So um, then once that all is packaged and put together and sent to the medical board within the 28-day deadline in Texas, the Texas medical board then has 17 days to either decide to dismiss the complaint at that stage based on the initial response or to um, open an an investigation on the matter. Some cases are almost always gonna go to investigation no matter what your response was. Those that involve alleged um, inappropriate sexual conduct almost always go to investigations. Those that involve a patient death almost always go to investigations. But there's a good chance, and I'd say probably in Texas, 70% of them get dismissed based on the initial response letter. But a lot of those that get dismissed on the initial response letter are those, you know, the patient's assistant was mean to me. I mean, and it's, it's always phrased differently than that. Uh, but in general terms, um, we see a lot of complaints about staff members or the doctor even being mean to the patient. And if you've got a chaperone in the room while you were seeing the patient and the chaperone will sign a statement that says, He wasn't mean to the patient. In fact, just the opposite. The patient started yelling at the doctor. Uh, Those are the type that can typically get dismissed in that initial 45-day time period.
0: You know, um, so much to uh, linger on. Let me start on the spoon-feeding the medical records. I think there's a tendency in superficial responses to the board stating that, you know, all of this is in the medical record, and then there's an unorganized, pile of papers in a wheelbarrow that gets dropped off at the board of medicine's office as opposed to putting together a crisp narrative and pulling out the quotes and showing which page number which line line numbers in the record support your response again i know it sounds like such a minor thing to do but these are people who are busy they've got a thousand things going on and they honestly do not have the time to go through you know, a 400-page medical record the way you would like them to, but the ball is in your court. If you make it easy for them and point out the relevant defense points, you know, if you make that happen, then it's likely to be received positively than somebody having to fumble through um, a a very disorganized record. So I think that's a really important point, uh, Jim.
1: Jeff, it it, it is. And the corollary to that is – don't overproduce medical records in your response. If mm-hmm. the complaint involves the date of service of June 16th, 2021, and you can respond to the complaint by just referring to the records of June 26th, 2021, even though this has been a long time patient of yours, uh, I never produce too many records because it goes back to the If you give them stuff, they start looking through it and they can start finding stuff completely unrelated to the complaint. Now, sometimes you got to give them the entire medical record, like in an an Mm OBGYN case or a baby delivery case, you want them to see the entire record leading up to whatever the problem was at the birth. But a lot of times, if it's just a, a, a complaint involving a specific data service, Give them that data service, but don't give them anything else.
0: You brought up a, having a chaperone, and there's an intuition that a chaperone is certainly mandatory, or a, let's, let's make it a good idea, when you're doing intimate examinations. So, for example, if it's a, a gynecologic examination, you know, if somebody's in stirrups, then having a chaperone would be helpful. Um I'm curious as to your opinion on um having a chaperone in the room for men having a prostate examination. Does that follow the same rules? Because when I've had a prostate exam, I probably would prefer no one else being in there. But I I I wonder whether making the option available and having the patient be in the driver's seat and decide what they want might clarify. I mean where this is 2022, the rules have changed in our society. Oh, yeah. Things that may have been acceptable 30 years ago are not acceptable any longer. Any any guidance on that?
1: Well, guidance, yes. Or Far thoughts? And fast opinions. rules, no. <laughs> um, uh, in today's world, and, and and literally anybody at any time can file a medical board complaint against you. It is fantastic if a physician has the luxury of having a scribe in the room with mm. them at all times, because who knows what kind of fact pattern a patient might imagine in their head if they or want to make up um, if they get mad at their physician. Um, so it, it, it would be awesome if every physician could at all times have either a medical assistant or a scribe in the room with them. That's not possible, though, uh, economically, and I understand that, Uh, but many times that has helped me get a physician out of a medical board complaint because there actually was a person in the room, not a chaperone in the sense of, you know, these female or male gynecological exams, Mm -hmm. uh, but in the sense of um, uh, just having been there uh, to help the doctor out because, you know, Medical record documentation is so important uh, for protecting yourself in front of the medical board. If you've got a scribe that can put more words into the note than you as the doctor might have put into the note because you're focused on patient care, that's fantastic. Um, but in the examples of you know guidance, um, there is in Texas at least no hard and fast rule in the Medical Practices Act that says when and when you don't have to have a chaperone in the room for a sensitive type exam i think it's generally accepted standard of care though that if you are going to be examining any sensitive part of either the same sex's body or the opposite sex's body that you certainly would want a chaperone in the room not only to make the patient feel more comfortable, but for your protection as well as the physician. Um, the prostate exam—I'm old enough to have had those—and um, I don't ever get offered that option by my physician. You raise an interesting point, though. There is a potential vulnerability there, though, Jeff, that you put your uh, finger on, and that's just a bad pun right there. But
0: I, I was going uh, to point that out if you didn't. Yeah, it was so. a bad Thanks pun, and it it.
1: just—it did just kind of. Uh, well, anyway, uh, <laughs> but you got to be careful as a, as, a, as a physician in today's world, certainly. And there are situations where the physician deserves to have a medical board complaint filed against them, but I have defended plenty where the physician did not deserve to have a complaint filed against them. And if there had been a chaperone in the room or a scribe in the room or a witness in the room, that it would have saved a lot of heartache and uh, turmoil for that particular physician.
0: Yeah, and it's hard to predict what, what allegations will be made. Um, we've worked with a client out on the West Coast who was just doing a normal physical exam. This is uh, no, no clothes were removed, no intimate body parts were examined. I believe he was just listening uh, to the chest for breath sounds, just to make sure there weren't any problems. Just doing a standard physical exam, and the woman was irritated for whatever reason and filed a complaint with the his employer. Filed a complaint with the Department of Public Safety, and ultimately filed a board complaint, alleging that while he was performing the examination, didn't say anything about him touching her breast inappropriately the allegation was that he was grinding his groin into her knee, grinding his groin into her knee. This was a two year saga. And I can only imagine that had a scribe been in that room, it would have shaved off just under two years of that problem. But it, it lingered for, for quite a while. And I feel horrible for him. Um, no, I've,
1: I've, I've encountered that fact pattern dozens and dozens of times and um that's why I, I you know i i got a finance degree from the university of texas and so i know the economics of having a scribe in the room but if 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 it is a luxury that a physician can afford i i certainly recommend it
0: what a great argument i'd never thought of a scribe uh serving a double role not just documentation but also just as a professional witness if you will i think that's a great idea yeah um let me i'm kind of going around here but um some of this related to things that I've seen recently. So in one particular case, a um, well, I've seen this not uncommonly, where a patient says, "I want you to give me my money back, or give me some money, or I'm going to file a complaint to the Board of Medicine." So in a sense, it's it's veiled uh, extortion, and you know the doctor doesn't know what to do. Uh, so on the one hand, he may be thinking, "I don't want to." create a problem with the Board of Medicine, so I'll just pay them off. And you know, hopefully they just will honor their end of the bargain and not file a complaint. But in the heart of hearts, they don't believe they did anything wrong. Uh, but the Board of Medicine is not designed to be a point of leverage to allow a patient to get personal gain. It's not designed to, to squeeze a doctor to open up his pockets and pay the patient off So in such circumstances, sometimes I wonder whether it makes sense, and I'm of two minds uh, on this, to just write a preemptive report to the board describing what a particular patient is threatening, trying to extract cash from the doctor in exchange for not filing a board complaint, because I think if they do it in advance of the patient making good on that threat, then the doctor has explained it up front as opposed to um, reacting after the fact. But I can certainly understand the flip side where why why alert the board to a potential patient problem and get yourself on their radar. Do you have any general thoughts on that?
1: Well, I've never thought about a preemptive strike. Uh, and, and, and typically I get involved after the complaint gets filed so it would be too late to do that type of preemptive strike. It's an interesting idea and potentially worth exploring. In those type of situations, uh, I like the fact pattern that this type of extortion has been made, and I make that front and center in my response to the board mm-hmm. that uh, the patient, you know, is using the board improperly to obtain leverage to not pay an unpaid bill or, or to get their money back in a situation where you know uh, the standard of care was met in all respects. Now, having said that. Uh, If a doctor did make a mistake, um, I would make sure I contact the medical malpractice carrier and discuss with them what the best way to handle the situation is, because you certainly don't want to create an admission of liability by refunding the money. Right. Um, But at the same point in time, if that's potentially the appropriate thing to do, it can certainly help you out at the medical board level. So that's where you have to kind of work you know, on two different pathways there at that point in time.
0: And one cautionary tale to our listeners is that if you give patient money back in exchange for a release, certainly one term you can put in that release is that they can't sue you for the actions that you are being done with. Um, on the other hand, there's a tendency for doctors to to believe incorrectly that the patient is sworn to silence and cannot file a complaint to the board of medicine. And I've seen those terms in release agreements. I don't think that they're enforceable because I think it's against public policy. And I've certainly seen one doctor get burnt in California when records were requested. He says, I can't give them because um, I signed a mutual confidentiality agreement with the patient. They said, if you don't give us his records, we're going to revoke your license. And I'm, I'm, accelerating the timeline for how this played out. But my point is, is that the um, the purpose of the board, among other things, is public safety. And a patient cannot leverage um, any rights that they have to sidestep the board's mission, which is public safety. And so if that's a term in a release agreement, I'd be cautious about leaving it in there. It's the type of term that I think is unenforceable and likely is more likely than not to create a problem if it's ever
1: I agree. In Texas, we have a rule that says you can't interfere with a patient's right to file a complaint, and that can be a separate violation of the Medical Practices Act. And I can assure you that those type of clauses that says, in exchange for this money, I, the patient, promise not to file a medical board complaint would be unenforceable as against public policy.
0: Yeah. (laughs) So uh, food for thought. Okay. In the interest of time, we're going to kind of go through quickly the whirlwind tour let's say that um that uniquely the the doctor who had a complaint filed um learns that the board is really opening up an investigation and they're they're moving forward um with without with 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 wild abandon and that um this process is not over the process continues what can the doctor expect next Well, what
1: what happens next in Texas is the medical board will notify you that you are under investigation. Mm -hmm. They'll ask you to fill out kind of a two-page, what's called a medical practice questionnaire, which gives basic statistical data about your practice, Uh, and it will ask questions like, have you ever been arrested before? And you certainly want to tell the truth on that because you don't Mm -hmm. want to create anything else uh, of any problems the next thing that happens is you will get a subpoena for the medical and billing records and you will have to produce it. So back on my example, if you had just given that one date of service and they ended up uh, opening an investigation and you had seen this patient for three to five years, they would subpoena the entire medical record at that point in time. So you would be duty bound to produce the entire medical record and the billing records along with an affidavit saying that this is a true and correct copy of all the medical and billing records. Medical records include all labs, prescriptions, portal communications, patient communications, telephone notes, internal communications, et cetera. Then in Texas, it kind of goes into a hole after you've produced all of that, your response, and the medical records pursuant to the subpoena. Texas has a statutory duty to conclude its investigations within six months. However, if they don't conclude their investigation within six months, their only duty is to write you a letter explaining why they haven't completed it within six months. Uh, But eventually, (coughs) you will get another letter in the future either saying we've reviewed this completely and we're dismissing it, or we've reviewed this completely and we're gonna offer you a slap on the wrist, or we've reviewed this completely and we're inviting you into the principal's office to discuss this uh, (laughs) with representatives of the Texas Medical Board. Um, During that six month period, typically what is happening is, especially if it involves standard of care, is the medical board is having that reviewed by two outside board certified experts in your area. If those two experts agree that you met the standard of care, you'll get that letter that says it's been dismissed. If the two experts agree that you have not met the standard of care, you will get the letter inviting you to talk about it in the principal's office. And if those two experts disagree, they actually have to hire a third expert to review it to be the tiebreaker.
0: Do you know who those experts are in Texas or are they anonymous?
1: We we do not. They're anonymous. Uh, Just like whoever files the complaint is anonymous. That's a point I didn't make earlier. You know, I I walked through all the different people that could potentially or groups of people that can potentially file a complaint. By statute, uh, the doctor is never allowed to find out who filed the complaint. Uh, Now, the complainant can waive their right to their confidentiality and the doctor find out. Same thing with the expert reviewers. Uh, They're assigned a number. They'll give a brief description about the expert in the expert report. It'll say such and such is a board-certified family practice physician that has been working in a large metropolitan area for 25 years. And that'll be all you know about the board's expert.
0: So you don't really know about their CV, their background, training, and experience, correct? Nothing. All right. So once the record has been reviewed by experts, um, and let's say it is a standard of care violation, what is the universe of options the board has at its disposal to um, to get resolution for this? Do they propose a resolution?
1: They they can they they can one they can dismiss it uh, if mm-hmm. if the experts are in agreement that there was no violation standard of care. Right. Two, if the experts believe there was a violation of the standard of care, but it was a minor deviation, or that you know the patient communications could have been better, or if the documentation could have get could have been better. The Texas Medical Board can propose what's called a remedial plan, which I call a kind of the proverbial slap on the wrist. Mm -hmm. It's non-disciplinary, so it's not reported to the National Practitioner Data Bank, and there is no fine attached to it. So if you're ever asked in the future, have you ever been disciplined or have you ever paid a fine and you agree to one of these remedial plans or you eventually get a remedial plan, you can truthfully answer no to that. Your name is not put in the quarterly newsletter of doctors that were disciplined by the board. And so your name does not get broadcast out in that press release that goes to all the doctors, newspapers, insurance companies, National Practitioner Data Bank, et cetera. Mm -hmm. It is, however, posted on your physician profile so that if anybody looked you up on the Texas Medical Board website, they would see that you received this remedial plan. The third option is to invite you into the principal's office. It's called an informal settlement conference uh, where you would get a letter that gives you the results of the board's investigation, including the expert reports and gives you 45 days notice that you're gonna come talk to the medical board in 45 days about this and allows you an opportunity to provide a written response 15 days in advance of your informal settlement conference. In Texas, the informal settlement conference is attended by a, a, under statute, one physician board member or a deputized board member that's a physician and one public member. So uh, the board wants equal representation at the settlement conference, one physician, one uh, layperson, public member. Uh, the board staff attorney will be there. There will be a board staff attorney that runs the meeting and then there'll be jim mcclendon or your 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 attorney along with yourself and it's your opportunity to discuss with the board members and answer their questions go over in depth your response that you filed 15 days in advance answer any questions at these informal settlement conferences they will almost say We see Attorney McClendon over here all the time. We know he's a good attorney. The board members would much rather hear from you, Dr. So-and-so, and and that's true. Uh, The limelight is on the doctor. They want to hear the doctor's own words what happened. The attorney has a role to play there, though. I kind of set the stage with an opening statement. I will talk about any of the legal issues that's involved, And then I'll kind of help the doctor go through a dog and pony show of asking them questions to get them to elicit their response, uh, to put the best light on their case and explaining it to the panel members. But at any point in time, the panel members can interrupt and say, hey, we've read your response. We got a couple of questions. When that happens, I tell my client to shut up. You listen and you answer their questions. You answer their questions thoroughly. Uh, this is the time for you to admit that some of the things that you did were not your finest moment, that you have learned from it, that you've benefited from this process, that you've put steps in place to make sure this sort of stuff won't happen again. But as I tell my, patient, my clients, um, uh, it's perfectly okay to disagree with the panel members. It's the manner in which you disagree with them that's important. Don't cop an attitude here. Uh, be respectful, uh, at, I don't care how flippant the question is, you don't give a flippant response, you give a thoughtful response, um, but at the same point in time, if you if you could have done better, this is the time to let them know that.
0: I frequently tell doctors that think of this, if if there was a bad outcome or if your judgment, if you had a judgment lapse for one period of time, Think of it as a snapshot, not a movie. You're trying to portray that this is a one-off. Um, and to your point, you've learned from it. Steps are been put into place, so it'll never happen again. I think if the board is left with that impression, I think they're going to go softer most of the time compared to somebody that comes out there with, um, you know, with brass knuckles on, looking for a fight.
1: Oh you can feel the air go out of the room as far as tension if the doctor comes in there and 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 I come in there with the right attitude about it no question about it and especially if you you know say I could have done better uh, the, the the doctor the, the the medical board's job is to protect the public and once they realize that you're a caring compassionate knowledgeable physician and that's why I want my clients talking a lot during the meeting once they figure that out then they just got to figure out what the right thing to do is at that point in time and they're not so much worried about protecting the public they're just trying to figure out what's the right thing to do in this circumstance given that the doctor's got a good attitude about this he clearly didn't do as many bad things as alleged against him but he could have done better and that's usually when the remedial plan starts coming into play at that point in time Or sometimes you get the dismissal even when you come in there and admit you could have done better and that you've learned from this. Um, I would say once you get to the informal settlement conference stage, all is not lost. A lot of my clients will think, oh, well, I'm getting called into the principal's office, I'm gonna get disciplined. No, that is not necessarily true. We're gonna defend yourself there. We're especially gonna defend the standard of care, especially when it's a righteous defense of the standard of care. You know, we can talk in terms of, yeah, you could have documented better, but all doctors can document better. You know, the standard of care for documentation is generally could another doctor pick up your case if something simply suddenly happened to you and had to take over the patient care. And I will generally argue that, yes, that is is there. Now, sure, he could have put more of his thought process into why he or she did something. But in general, this documentation does meet the standard of care, but it could have been better. So I walk out of these principal's office meetings with quite a few dismissals, and I have to provide my clients with assurances that that can happen.
0: So once once you're done with that meeting, what's the next step? Let's assume uh, beyond dismissal, because dismissal is a great outcome. You're done. Everybody is uh, doing high fives. So I think that's a great outcome but um, in terms of a remedial plan, is that the type of thing that may be worked on during the informal settlement conference? And it's not worked on
1: during the informal settlement conference. It can get proposed um, or an agreed order can be proposed. Uh, Both of those are just proposals made by the panel members that day. You do not accept it or reject it right there in front of them. You just say thank you very much and you leave the room, um, and then the medical board attorney reduces that remedial plan or that proposed agreed order <coughs> to written form and sends it to me. And the uh, then we have you know 20 days to respond. It can be wordsmith some during that time period. I can try to soften the fact findings. I can try to soften the conclusions of law. I can try to soften the discipline, like if they say, you know, we want a chart monitor to review your records for eight quarters, and there really was bad documentation. But I might can say, you know, we'll sign this if you'll just give us four quarters of chart Mm -hmm. monitoring. So there is some negotiations that can go back and forth. But at the end of the day, if an agreed order is not is proposed and not signed, or a remedial plan is proposed and not signed then that's when it goes to the state office of administrative hearings and a whole nother process uh, starts, which is the administrative law judge process.
0: So is that is that's real court, that's outside of the, I mean, the board is on one side, you're on the other, but a judge is the one that's gonna make the decision, which every state varies, but sometimes it's not even binding at that level. I think it's probably useful to chat about that briefly.
1: Yeah, so in Texas, what the procedure is, and and doctors are always trying to get this changed at the legislature, and they've made some changes. But in general, if it goes to the administrative law judge, the administrative law judge is the final decision maker when it comes to the finding of facts and conclusions of law. And by the conclusions of law, I mean, was there or was there not a violation of the Medical Practices Act? So if you go over to the administrative law judge and the medical board is saying you failed to meet the standard of care on this patient and your medical record documentation was poor and you go over to the medical board and get a finding from I mean, over to the administrative law judge and you get a finding from the administrative law judge that the standard of care was met. But yes, the documentation was poor. The judge does not get in Texas, at least, does not get to do the discipline. That decision is then bundled up and then sent back over to the medical board, and the medical board gets to make the final decision as to what the discipline is for the failure to have good medical record keeping. Um, There are very limited circumstances where the medical board can reverse the decision of the administrative law judge on the standard of care. It happens very rarely. There's a pretty famous case in Texas where it did happen, um, but I have not had that happen in any of my situations. Generally, what the administrative law judge says as to the findings of fact and conclusions of law are binding on the medical board, but the medical board gets the final say on discipline. Now, if the judge said no violation of standard of care, in my example, and no violation of documentation, then it's going to pretty much have to be dismissed by the medical board and no sanction against the position.
0: That's a great outcome. It does seem to vary state by state. Some states, the decision of an administration law, law judge is um, persuasive, but not necessarily binding. And frequently, they will listen to it. But I, I've certainly seen situations in other states where you get what appears to be a win or mostly a win in court, goes back to the board, and they say, yeah, we we got it. But uh, if you really don't like our our ruling at the board level, you're going to have to appeal it and take it up to the appellate court, which is yet one more round, more time, more expense, et cetera. Um, so it seems like the, it varies state by state in terms of whether the board has to follow the um, the ruling of, of an ALJ at that level before it goes up to an appellate court.
1: Yeah, I uh Texas law has changed over my many years of practice, and it's gotten better about the um, about the board having to follow what the administrative law judge does. But back in the mid 90s, I had to take one all the way to the Texas Supreme Court. And uh, just before we were going to do the oral arguments before the Texas Supreme Court, my client and I were able to reach a deal with the medical board. Uh, where the medical board actually had a ruling that they kind of ended up liking on the books that I think maybe the Texas Supreme Court would have overturned uh, back in the 90s here in Texas. But it allowed my uh, my client to continue on with his life as a physician. And so uh, we ended up reaching a settlement on that. But that's the furthest I've had to take one. And since the rules have become a little bit more doctor friendly, shall I say, Mm -hmm. Uh, with regard to the administrative law judge process. Generally, the administrative law judge uh, decision after the medical board enters its discipline ends the process.
0: You know, I I love that. I think it's more fair to the doctor because the whole purpose of a court system is to adjudicate conflict. And there's a conflict between the doctor and the medical board. And if they're both on different sides of the scales then at least you get a fair shot but in other states it's almost like a dictatorial process where you take it to alj but it's it's really not the end of the matter if you don't like the way it comes back to the board you've got to go one more round in the appellate so i i actually like the way texas has done this and it probably did evolve over time because of some prior egregious acts that's, that's exactly
1: people. right and you know medical board practice is the ultimate kangaroo court Uh, the medical board is the judge the medical board is the jury and the medical board is the prosecutor and so when i go back to talking about in terms of hiring an attorney that has experience in this area you got to realize that going into the process and you got to work within that framework and that rubric and achieve the best result for your client within that ultimate kangaroo court setting. Uh, The administrative law judge is one step removed from a kangaroo court because there is an independent judge that is making the decision of the findings of fact and the conclusions of law. Although it is another state agency, just like the Texas Medical Board is a state agency, the administrative law judge, state office of administrative hearings, is also a state agency. It's a sister state agency, but in Texas, I'll give a big shout out to the State Office of Administrative Hearings uh, and administrative law judges. They are truly independent of the Texas Medical Board and do independent um, decision making. I'll also give out a shout out to the Texas Medical Board. I have worked with them for many, many, many years. I know a lot of clients are disillusioned by the Medical Board, and some of them have every right to do so, but I have seen the medical board process work the vast majority of the time. What I generally end up telling clients is 80% of the time, I think the Texas Medical Board gets it right. I think 15% of the time, in my opinion, they got it wrong, but I can see how they got it wrong. There was some gray area there. And I think it's only 5% of the time where I'm like, what the heck just happened? And we do have to go to the administrative law judge process. But in general, the Texas Medical Board is a very well-run organization. I think there's many well-intentioned people there. Again, this has changed over time. We have a fantastic medical board uh, as far as membership these days. When I first started out, it was not so kind and gentle and friendly, and uh, but and was used by competitors to get each other. That mm-hmm. has definitely gone away over time.
0: Jim, we're pushing up. Uh- against our time limit here. I can't thank you enough for taking us on this whirlwind tour. I'm certain we could speak for hours about various vignettes um, and the other questions that I have, and I will tap your brain going forward. We'll have to do another round at some point. Before we leave, do you have any final and parting thoughts for our listeners? Well,
1: thank you for the time, Jeff, and this opportunity. I kind of tried to do my little summation there at the very end, putting in a plug for the State Office of Administrative Hearings and the the Medical Board. I know it can be daunting to, to doctors. I know it can be doctors hate uncertainty, and there is uncertainty when you're going through the Medical Board process. But if you get the right lawyer and you trust the process and you've generally done the right thing with good intentions. And even if you had a bad day that particular day, we're going to get you through the process. We're going to save your license and you're going to have a long and successful career.
0: Boy, amen to that. I'm going to end on that note because that's an uplifting note. Jim, thanks again for participating. I can't wait until we talk again. Thank you. Bye now. And with that, we're at the end of our broadcast. Thanks for joining us. In closing, a few messages. If you're an existing member of Medical or Dental Justice and you find yourself on the receiving end of a medical legal threat, please contact us at 1-877-MED-JUST. That's 1-877-MED-JUST or 633-5878. Our STAT hotline is a service offered to all current members. It's designed to get your urgent medical legal questions answered ASAP. Members can also access a plethora of exclusive medical legal resources by logging into their members only page, which can be accessed by our website, medicaljustice.com. Now we want to protect as many doctors as possible. If one of your colleagues is in trouble, please refer him. When a current member of Medical Justice refers a colleague and that colleague becomes a member, you both receive a month of free protection. To refer a colleague, write to us at infonews. That's IN. Epison Frank O News at medicaljustice.com. That's infonews at medicaljustice.com. Now, before we close, one last request. If you enjoyed this episode, please write a review on your preferred podcast provider and share our podcast with your colleagues. Reviews help maintain our podcast visibility, which in turn helps us reach a broader audience. This helps us protect more doctors. Thank you for joining us this week. We hope you'll join us on the next episode of the Medical Liability Minute.